Thank you for what you do. All right, let's go ahead and dismiss the kiddos. So we have our wonderful children's church staff workers over here. So kiddos, stand up out of your seats. And if a parent wants to guide you, head on over. They are waiting in the wings. And then, Caitlin, I also need that. Nope. There you go. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. All right, we'll let them filter out. And then also we have our uh, Christmas Eve service coming up. And so I want to encourage you to grab one of these cards on your way out. Take this and share it with a neighbor. Share it with a friend. Invite someone to come to our Christmas Eve service. Um, It's super accessible. I, I think the beautiful thing about living in America, Christmas Eve, um, you know, it, it's, it's easy within our culture to, uh, to invite, to pass on that invitation. So grab one of these and share it with a neighbor and, or a friend or a coworker. It'd be a great opportunity for you to do that. So um, will you join me in prayer as we enter into a time of teaching? Jesus, Lord, we come before you thankful that you are Lord. Thankful that you are sovereign over all creation, that you know what you're doing. And Lord, even right now, you are upholding Mars. Lord, you are the creator and sustainer of all things. So Lord, when, you, when we come to your word, we don't come to it lightly. Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would minister to us, show us more about who you are. Reveal to us a little bit more of who this child is that's in the manger. And Lord, I pray that that reality would shape the way that we live our lives. And that reality would shape the way that we treat other people. And see your handiwork, your orchestration of human history. Lord, lead us to your word. Lord, help us to love you more dearly and see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. I was asked by a student this past week about where the best place to start if they wanted to read the Christmas story. Where do you go? What did I tell her? I told her what any pastor that is worth their salt would say. Go to Luke chapter 2. After all, this is what is read at the very end of the Charlie Brown Christmas story. Let's go. What's Christmas all about? There we go. Um, at the Charlie Brown Christmas, and stands as one of the few places that, in, that is culturally acceptable where the Christmas story is read from Scripture uninterrupted. As Charlie Brown begins, or as Charlie Brown begs the question, what is Christmas all about? Or, this is more clearly what he says, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And meek little Linus, there he is. You see him. Uh, And meek little Linus responds, sure, Charlie Brown. I can't do his voice. (laughs) Sure, Charlie Brown. 
I could tell you what Christmas is all about. Then dragging his trusty little blanket, he goes on over to the microphone. And if you notice, some people even do devotions on this, that he drops his blanket when he says, do not fear. Have you noticed that? Do not fear, drops his blanket. His blanket represents security to him. That's a story for another time. Anyway, but dragging his trusty blanket across the floor towards the center stage, he speaks into the microphone and he calls a spotlight. He then recites Luke 2, verses 8 through 14 from memory. And you know the rest of the story. He talks about Jesus. He talks about the true meaning of Christmas, that God sent his son. And the news for the angels went to the shepherds, and the shepherds went to Jerusalem. Nope, they didn't go to Jerusalem. They went to Bethlehem. And the good news that Christ was born was spread throughout the world. Typically, when it comes to the Christmas story, we often skip over the part that might be hard to explain for the little ones around us. We start at Luke 2, just like Linus did, right? The genealogies come in Luke 1 and also in Matthew 1. Those are difficult for our kids. I did not tell Rosemary about the genealogies this year. In the future, I will. My daughter's four. Sorry, for those that don't know. Four-year-old, I'm not telling her about the genealogies. But for the psalm we are looking at today, Psalm 110, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Psalm 110. Oops, there we go. The Messiah is seen here in two different ways. And this is a very unique psalm and a very mysterious psalm. So anybody like a good mystery? I like a good mystery. Um, but this is a mysterious psalm deciphering who's talking to who and what's actually going on. The genealogies in Matthew and Luke were there to help the Jews. Uh, uh, most, if not all Jews around that time of Christ were able to trace back their, ancest their ancestry to see where they fit into the genealogies. But with what we're going to go towards today, Psalm 110, this jumps past it all. The title of the message this morning is David's Line and David's Lord, based off of uh, Psalm 110. And so the idea here is that David's line, that Jesus was in, the Messiah was in the lineage of David, is very important. And he's also David's Lord. David's the king. We understand this by looking at the Old Testament. But this is not a psalm that uh, this is not a psalm that's often memorized for Awana on Wednesday nights, or you often don't uh, uh, read this one in a Bible study. But Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, verse one from Psalm 110 is quoted 25 times in the New Testament. And verse 4, talking about Melchizedek, is quoted five times in the New Testament. That tells you something about the significance of Psalm 110 in the coming of Christ. This is an important psalm, and we need to pay attention. But the driving question this morning that we're going to be looking at is when you look at the manger, 
the coming of Christ, what do you see? No, we see nativity scenes all over their town. We see nativity scenes that are in front of churches here down the street, across town. But when we look at the manger, the coming of Christ, what do you see? Do we see Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and King? Or do we see a perfect six-pound, seven-ounce baby that we're worshiping there? Do we see Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and King? And do we see him as the priest, the Melchizedek, which we're going to get to, and why it's important for Jesus to be our high priest? Do we see him as high priest? Do we see him as king, especially when we look at him as a baby in the manger? Now, there's a structure to this psalm before we get to it. The structure to the psalm is that uh, David is moved by the Holy Spirit to share a message from God, the Father, to Christ the Son. This is super fascinating because it starts out with, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord says to my Lord. So David is sharing a conversation between the Lord and the Lord. Now, our English translation is limited (laughs) to express the fullness of what's going on here. If you look at it in your Bibles, a lot of you might have the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Note that every time capital L-O-R-D comes up throughout Scripture, it is referring to Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. And that is God's self-revealed name. And we find that where Moses, the first place it appears is when Moses is standing before the burning bush and he is sent to the Israelites to begin the exodus. But he says, okay, who do I tell you sent me? Or who do I tell them sent me? And God responds and says, I am that I am. That's what it means, Yahweh. So, the great I am says to my Lord. What's the second Lord? The second Lord there is another name. It's, no, it, it, it's a title for God in the Old Testament. Is Adonai, which communicates God's sovereignty and God's position. It's his title within the Old Testament. So, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, if we don't understand, if we don't see where this all fits, it makes it quite challenging. But it is broken down into two oracles. The first oracle is this conversation that's happening from God the Father to God the Son. This is understood throughout history as, and within the Jewish people as a messianic psalm, that it's pointing forward to the coming Messiah. So he is coronating, he is coronated as king. And then in the second part, he is consecrated as the priest. So how do we read this? Well, 
one of the important things as we're looking at Scripture, as we're deciphering some things like this that might be difficult to understand, I'm going to give you guys a hermeneutical tip. Are you ready? You ready for a hermeneutical tip? A hermeneutical tip is that we use parts of the Bible that are clear to clarify parts of the Bible that are less, less clear. Does that make sense? Because if you're reading Psalm 110 and you're reading it for what it is, you might not know what it's referring to. But we're using the clarity from other areas to clarify the place that is a little less clear. So there's the structure. There's the two oracles that are taking place. The first one is in reference to Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Does anybody have a right-hand man? That might be where this phrase is coming from because throughout Scripture there's this idea of sitting at my right hand. It's a place of prominence. It's a place of honor. It's a place that is uh, very important. So sit at my right hand. So God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. We see Jesus actually asked this question. He stumps the Pharisees when we look at uh, Matthew 22. So he asked the question to the Pharisees, and this is the first reference in the New Testament to Psalm 110, where he both confirms the king, uh, that King David is led by the Spirit to write this, but he also confirms together with the Pharisees that the psalm is concerning the Messiah. But he leaves them hanging. He lets them linger on it. So here is Matthew 22, where Jesus is with the Pharisees. He says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered, the, the Bible says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that the Lord in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. We play this game with youth group every so often called Stump the Chump. And in Stump the Chump, the, the, we, we ask these questions. Give me your toughest Bible question. This is a good one. What does Psalm 110 mean? I think the beautiful thing about this text and what Jesus is sharing through his life is that he is that son that he is the son that has come to be the savior. He is the Messiah. And the Messiah, the Pharisees don't quite understand this, but that the son of God was standing right before them. That Jesus is the revelation of God, the one that has come. So I'll ask you again what I asked you in the beginning. When you look at the manger, what do you see? You know, it's interesting, looking at the Christmas story, there's multiple times where Jesus, the coming of Jesus is referred to as the Lord. The angels say it. The shepherds say it. The angel says to Mary, he will be Christ the Lord. And they say it to Joseph as well. Every person that's communicated makes sure that the Lord is in there. 
because that is what the manger is. That he is a part of David's line, but he is more importantly David's Lord. In Luke 20, we also see this, where Jesus is referring to, Jesus is referred to as the son of David, where there's a lame man asking. And multiple times throughout the ministry of Jesus, there are people that refer to him as son of David. Now, if Jesus was not actually in the lineage of David, if Joseph and Mary were not in the lineage of David, people would not be saying that. People, he, he, he would, these accusations of Christ being the son of David would never materialize. Because in that time, as I mentioned earlier, everybody knew their genealogies, especially within the Jews. Every one of them knew how they fit into God's people. And so it would have been thrown out. But when this man in Luke 20 says, Son of David, have mercy on me. He is calling Jesus the Messiah in that very statement. So, it's fascinating to see throughout the New Testament that Jesus is constantly referred to as the son of David. He's within David's line. And if you want to dig deeper into that, I would encourage you to look at it. But the most important thing there is that there's the connection that these start with the genealogies. Matthew starts with the genealogies leading up to Mary. Luke starts with the genealogies leading up to Joseph. It all converges at Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And that Messiah is our great King. You know, it's fascinating that David would say such a thing because David is the greatest king in Israel's history. New Testament, looking back at him, is referred to as the, the, the greatest king. But what Jesus is in this passage is that he is a greater king. That David was the greatest king of mankind, but Jesus is a better David. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of ages. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Even in Acts, Peter refers to Psalm 110 and Acts 2, 34 through 36 on the day of Pentecost to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah Lord and that their ministry, the beginning of the church from Acts 2, hinges on the Messiah. That, that message that is going out as people are sent out from that place that is the message that is going out, that Jesus is the Messiah. Another place that is very important that this psalm comes up is in Hebrews. It is scattered all over the place. Hebrews 1.13, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse to argue that the Messiah is greater than all the angels. Is there anybody else? That it could be referring to when the Lord says to my Lord, there's nobody else that fits that title. It is only Jesus. And that is how they start out 
the book of Hebrews. And the, writer, uh, the writers in the New Testament cite this verse in order to show that after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, he is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. That's where Jesus is at, and he is our advocate. He is the one that we pray through. He is the one that takes our prayers and presents them to the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. Then also in the New Testament, writers uh, state that God the Father places his enemies under his son's feet. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's a reference, Ephesians 1, 22, and then Hebrews 10, 3. We see there's a conquering that takes place. Your enemies at, as your footstool. That is utterly conquering. If I were to take a person and use them as a footstool, that is a conquering maneuver. That is a conquering action. It's kind of disrespectful, right? <laughs> if I were to ask somebody up here, would you be my footstool? And I put my foot on you. That is not necessarily kind thing for us, but it is showing the power of what Christ has done to have victory over the grave. And the enemies they're referring to here, this is very important, is that Jesus, through his cross work, through what he has done on the cross, has conquered sin and death on our behalf and invites us into that. That's the beauty of Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus has power over the grave. When we look at the manger, is that what we see? We see victory of Jesus coming for the first time. Jesus is David's line. If he wasn't, they would have found out real quickly. But Jesus is also David's Lord. Now we look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16. This is talking about the extent that Jesus will be the king. How will Jesus be a greater Lord than the greatest king in history? 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16, it says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and, your, and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. So, this is God's prophecy through Nathan to David. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with flogged and infected by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. And I took it away from, as I took it away from Saul, 
whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forevermore. Forever. How do you quantify forever? Forever is forever. It is eternity. That the problem with the kings that came before Jesus is they could have been a great king. David was a great king. But what happened to David? He died. And then they'd get another king. And we cycle through kings and kings and kings. But this king from 2 Samuel 7, God's promise, the covenant to David, is that this will be a king forever. That he will rule on your throne Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. When we look at the manger, what do you see? Do you see the forever king that has come to reign with his people? Do you see the king that has come to live the perfect life that you could not live? To die on the cross for your sin, taking your punishment, taking our punishment that was meant for us, but it was credited to Him so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be made right. And then Jesus, raising from the dead, becoming that King forever, and ascending into heaven, that is our King forever. The question from verse 4. And I'm not going to get too much into this. If you want to check out Melchizedek, go ahead and do it on your own. (laughs) Melchizedek is a strange animal (laughs) in the Old Testament. He appears three places throughout Scripture. Once in Psalm 10, but also back in Genesis 22, where um, Abraham brings an offering to Melchizedek, and he doesn't have a place, or he he's not doesn't have a father. Nobody speaks of his father. It doesn't talk about when he dies. It doesn't talk about. It just says he's the king of Salem, and Abraham goes and gives him an offering. And this is a type of Christ. Some people will go as far to say that he is a, uh, a Christophany or a pre-incarnate Christ, which is something you could really get carried away with and really excited to see Jesus working in the Old Testament. Uh, but the safest thing to go with is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the fascinating thing about Melchizedek is he fills two offices, Two offices that in human history have never worked out together. That's what makes Melchizedek very interesting. The first office is that he is priest. That he is the mediator between God and the people. That he uh, helps them become right with God. He leads them in making things right with God. So he's the priest. He's the mediator. Then he is also the king. And if we look at some, some examples from human history, 
Uh, I, I was actually uh, speaking with one of my friends who is a uh, pastor at a Messianic congregation. And uh, in, in the Talmud, in the Jewish Bible, one of the things that's uh, in the Maccabean Wars, there's one point where they have this great victory and this man is a priest and they don't have a king. And he assumes both offices and they think it's going to be okay. And you see the downfall that happens again and again and again. And in, in recent history, well, not so recent history, maybe in the last 150 years, King Henry VIII tried to take the place of Pope. And at one point there was two popes. And he tried to be Pope and King of England. And it did not work out well for him. Why? Because so often you sacrifice one for the other. You do not adequately fulfill both offices. We see Melchizedek, it doesn't say a whole lot about him, but he's worthy of this tithe that Abraham gives him. So the person of Melchizedek is very fascinating. Psalm 110, Genesis 22, and then he's also referenced in Hebrews. And in Hebrews... Psalm 110 is sandwiched together and it's pointing towards Christ that he is the one-time mediator for all. If you walk away with one thing today, I want you to walk away with this. That when you look at the manger, you see a better king than David. And when you look at the manger, you see a better priest king than Melchizedek. That is what it means for Christ to be the Messiah. That he fulfills the office of priest. And he is a better Melchizedek. And he fulfills the office of king. And he is a better David. So a couple questions I want to leave you with. When you look at the manger, the coming of Christ, what do you see? Do you see the king? Do you see the priest? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Do you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah in the line of David? This is rooted in history. This is rooted in a timeline that Jesus is the fulfillment of over 250 prophecies from the Old Testament. He hits them out of the park. He fulfills every one of them pointing forward to the Messiah. That this is something that can be confirmed that it is Christ that fulfills all of these. I want you to ask yourself also, do you have a great high priest that stands before you in judgment? One of the things about Psalm 110 that's a little scary is some of the language about judgment. That there's some war language that's taking place there. And that Jesus is our advocate, standing in our place when we come to judgment. And it's either we are covered by Christ or we are standing there in our sin. I want to encourage you today to search your heart to see, are you covered by Christ? And this Christmas, 
when you look at the manger, I want, to know there's an, I want you to know there's an open invitation to abide in Christ, to put your faith in Him and trust in what He has done on your behalf. That He has conquered the grave and has faced sin and death. He's faced the enemy on our behalf. And all we have to do is to look to Him in faith and trust in His sacrifice and trust in what He has done and know that He has conquered for us. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is He at the very center of your being? Sometimes we hold things back on our own to say, God, you can be the Lord of all of this, but I'm going to hang on to these three or four areas. Is Jesus the Lord of all? And if you have already put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you. Search your heart for those areas that Christ is not Lord over and put Him in His rightful place as the Lord over all. Pray with me. Jesus, Lord, we thank You for Your Word that brings us life. We thank You that You are the Lord of lords. You are the King of kings. And Lord, that You rule and reign even now. Lord, we know that Hebrews says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, the Father of lights. And Lord, anything good that happens in our world is because of your dominion, is because of your reign. So Lord, help us as we search our hearts, help us as we examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith. And Lord, help us to put you as the Lord of our lives without amendment. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for being our king above all kings, for being a better David, for being a better Melchizedek, and for loving us all the way to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.